Hi, this is Chris Young. Welcome to episode 57 of Contemplating Life, Oscar edition. In this episode, we're going to take an extremely brief look at four films that were nominated for major awards, but were not among the ten films nominated for Best Picture. We start off with a Netflix film, Nyad, the story of famous long-distance swimmer Diana Nyad, brilliantly portrayed by Annette Bening, who's nominated as Best Lead Actress. She's accompanied by my all-time favorite actress, Jodie Foster, who plays Nyad's best friend and coach, Bonnie Soule. She received a Supporting Actress nomination. The chemistry between these two is phenomenal. Together they put on a master class in acting, and both nominations are very much deserved. Nyad set several records for long-distance offshore swimming. She swam completely around Manhattan Island, swam 89 miles from the Bahamas to Florida. She swam from Capri to Naples, Italy in record time, among other records. She's most famous, however, for her attempt to swim 103 miles from Havana, Cuba to the Florida Keys at age 28. Unfortunately, she failed. She was a frequent commentator on ABC Sports, especially their Olympics coverage, and she was a successful author and businesswoman. At age 60, Nyad realized she had unfinished business. She began training to tackle her white whale quest of the Cuba to Florida swim. At first, she trained alone, then eventually revealed to her friend Bonnie that she was going to make the Cuba attempt again. Bonnie began coaching her and assisting her in recruiting sponsorships. Some initial test swims of 12 or 24 hours did not go well, but she eventually built up her stamina and skills and began preparing for the attempt. She recruited a man named John Bartlett as her navigator. He operated a charter boat in the area and was an expert on the currents and the weather of the area. Nyad partially blamed her previous failure on the inexperience of her navigator. Bartlett is played by one of my favorite character actors, Rise Ethens. He recently appeared in HBO's House of the Dragon. He was in Spider-Man No Way Home. But I especially appreciated his performance in three seasons of the spy series Berlin Station, which I highly recommend. I mentioned last week his performance was more interesting to me than anything that Ryan Gosling did in Barbie, and I would have nominated him instead for supporting actor. We follow Nyad through three more unsuccessful attempts at the Cuba crossing. She risks shark attacks and deadly jellyfish stings as well as a fierce storm, all of which nearly killed her. Unlike attempts from other people, she did not use a shark cage. Rather, she relied on electronic shark repellent systems. 
She also had to develop a special suit and mask to protect her from potentially deadly jellyfish stings. After these failures, her friend Bonnie, the navigator Bartlett, and her entire team give up, and they encourage her to abandon her quest. The film is a fascinating look at how a driven person surrounds themselves with supporters to help them achieve their goals, but that those supporters pay a personal cost to be a part of the driven person's life. This theme was especially meaningful to me as someone who is dependent upon a team of people. For me to just live an ordinary and productive life with my disability. After 68 years of being dependent upon other people for everything, I'm beginning to feel the weight of the cost it has had on my friends and family. So this film triggered many emotions in me. Nyad was raised to believe she has a great destiny in the water. She often tells the story of how her father explained to her that the word Nyad was the name of Greek mythological nymphs who swam the ocean. Once her friends realize that she is going to proceed with or without them, they relent and join her for one final try. I don't think it's a spoiler to say that her fifth attempt was successful. The film fails to address the fact that her successes were not universally recognized by the marathon swimming community. For technical reasons, her swim from Cuba to Florida was insufficiently documented for her record to be officially recognized. The record was removed from the Guinness Book of Records because they rely upon sanctioning bodies for such records. Still, there were over 40 witnesses to her swim, and if she did not meet all of the exact technical requirements for the record to be recognized, it is still, nevertheless, an amazing accomplishment. Now, I've been a huge fan of Jodie Foster for as far back as I can remember. <laughs> I often joke about the difference between me and John Hinckley Jr., whose obsession with Foster led him to attempt to assassinate Ronald Reagan. Hinckley was obsessed with Jodie Foster, and I claim there's nothing unusual or insane about that. I'm obsessed with her. Hinckley also hated Ronald Reagan, and so do I, although not enough to want to kill him. So there's nothing inherently insane about having these two views. The thing that separates me as a foster-obsessed, Reagan-hating person from a nut job like John Hinckley is that somehow Hinckley found a connection between the two. That's why he's nuts and I'm not. Or at least I like to think so. Even accounting for my biased obsession with Jodie Foster, you would probably agree that she delivers a memorable performance. And as I said earlier, her chemistry with Annette Bening is amazing. By the way, although both characters are lesbian, they are just friends in this story. 
Nyad explains early on that the two had dated briefly decades ago, but now they're just best friends. Still, you feel every bit of the great love that they have for one another as friends. Foster is my biased pick for supporting actress, but I think that Divine Joy Randolph in The Holdovers is more likely to win, given that she has already won at the Golden Globes and the BAFTA Awards. I very much enjoyed Randolph's performance, and I will not be disappointed if she beats out Jodie Foster for the win. Benning is my second favorite choice as lead actress behind Sandra Huller in Anatomy of a Fall, but Emma Stone is the odds-on favorite for poor things. This Netflix film was released in November and shown in theaters only long enough to be Oscar eligible. Its worldwide gross is only $16,056, according to IMDb. It's currently still available on Netflix, and I highly recommend it. Our next film is another Netflix biopic. Rustin is the story of civil rights activist Bayard Rustin, who planned and organized the 1963 March on Washington, D.C., where Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. famously delivered his I Have a Dream speech. Rustin is played by Coleman Domingo and has earned a much-deserved lead actor nomination for the role. In that category, I greatly appreciated all five nominees, and I would put Bradley Cooper and Maestro as my favorite, with the remaining four performances in a tie for second place. I just can't decide. Rustin was as openly gay as one could be in the early 1960s, and we see the consequences of that situation as he's forced out of the civil rights movement for fear that his sexuality will damage the cause. When there were accusations that he was in a homosexual relationship with Dr. King, he offered to resign from the NAACP, and he expected King to refuse the resignation. When King accepted his resignation, it caused a great rift between the two friends that lasted for several years. Rustin had studied the nonviolent philosophies of Gandhi and is credited with introducing King to the concept of nonviolent civil disobedience. Rustin conceived the idea of the largest nonviolent protest in history, a march on Washington, D.C. that would attract 100,000 people. It would be a two-day affair that included encircling the White House, protesting outside Congress, and a gathering at the National Mall in front of the Lincoln Memorial. Ultimately, he was forced to scale it back to a single-day event at the National Mall. The event was still a massive success that drew 250,000 people. The film chronicles his difficult quest to gain respect in the movement in the face of his homosexuality. 
One of his primary detractors was NAACP chairperson Roy Wilkins, who is portrayed by comedian Chris Rock. Although Rock does an acceptable job in the dramatic role, I still couldn't get past thinking of him as a comedian trying to be dramatic. His performance was not strong enough to make me forget I was watching Chris Rock, the comic. We get brief cameo appearances by actors we've already talked about for their other nominated work. Specifically, Jeffrey Wright plays Representative Adam Clayton Powell, and Divine Joy Randolph plays Mahalia Jackson, who sang at the National Mall event. Rustin reconciles his relationship with Dr. King, and they work together to promote the march. When accusations again arose against Rustin, this time Dr. King supported his friend. Similar to Nyad, we see the effect that this highly motivated, obsessed, driven person has on his friends and colleagues around him and the price that they have to pay for being his friend. I first became aware of Coleman Domingo from his excellent work in the TV series Fear the Walking Dead, where he plays a highly troubled character, Victor Strand. In that series, he is often the villain, but he's one who you can root for as he tries to constantly redeem himself. He also does an admirable job playing Mr. in this year's musical remake of The Color Purple. In addition to his lead actor Oscar nomination, he was also nominated for Golden Globe and BAFTA Awards for the role. And he's named as part of the ensemble cast SAG nomination for The Color Purple. The film appeared in a number of film festivals and saw a limited theatrical release, but no box office figures are available. It's been on Netflix since November and is still available. This true life story is compelling and well worth your time. In our next film, Danielle Brooks has received an Oscar nomination for Supporting Actress for her work in the 2023 remake of The Color Purple. She's most famous for her work in 89 episodes of the Netflix series Orange is the New Black. Unfortunately, despite its popularity, I never watched that series, so I was unfamiliar with her work. I'm more embarrassed to say I had never seen the original 1985 version of The Color Purple, directed by Steven Spielberg. Initially, I could not understand why such an iconic and beloved film, not yet 40 years old, needed to be remade. Then I discovered that the new version was based on a Broadway musical adaptation of the story. Now, it seems strange to make a musical out of such a dark topic, but my three favorite musicals of all time are, in order, Jesus Christ Superstar, Les Miserables, 
and fan of the opera. And although there are some upbeat numbers in those shows, none of them could be described as happy, feel-good stories. So the idea of taking a story of a woman who is used and abused and essentially made a slave of her husband could theoretically be ripe for appropriate musical treatment. Sadly, this film is not an appropriate treatment of such a dark story. I'm deeply surprised that Steven Spielberg, Oprah Winfrey, and author Alice Walker are all listed as executive producers. They signed off on this travesty. I watched the original film and the musical remake simultaneously. How? Well, I would watch 15 to 20 minutes of one film and then switch to the other one to see how it treated the same material. Well, indeed, there are some happy moments in the early part of the story as Celie and her sister Olivia are young girls. And the story does have a happy ending. The bulk of the story is the deeply tragic story of a woman who is sold by her father to be the wife of a horrible and abusive farmer. Although all of the characters are black and the story takes place from 1909 to 1947, he treats her as though she were a slave. There are only one or two musical numbers that I felt were appropriately somber and emotional to fit the tone of the story. The majority of the numbers, except for those during the happy ending, and a couple of numbers in a juke joint bar, seem to be completely tone deaf to the seriousness of the subject at hand. I could write the extensive review, almost scene by scene, of everything wrong with this musical adaptation but it's not worth my time nor yours to do so. Ultimately, we're only here to talk about the nominated performance of Danielle Brooks, but it's difficult to be objective about that performance in the film which I so deeply hated. Brooks plays Sophia, which is the same character played by Oprah Winfrey in the original film. One cannot help but compare the performances. While Brooks did an adequate job of playing the character as feisty and at times providing much-needed comic relief, overall her performance is nowhere near as moving during the tragic parts of her story as was Oprah's original portrayal. Sophia talks sarcastically to the wife of the mayor of the town and then gets an argument with the mayor where she strikes him across the cheek. This lands her in jail for many years. In Spielberg's version, she comes out of the experience severely scarred with her left eye almost completely closed from the beatings she took over the years. But in this version, there are no visible scars from her experience. Thus, 
the experience seems to me to be diluted, or dare I say, whitewashed. I suppose, to be fair, we are to judge her performance on its own, and not in comparison to the previous version. The kindest thing I can say about her in that regard is that her performance was adequate. I have no complaints about it, but I would not have nominated her. I would have rather seen the supporting actress nomination go to Julianne Moore in our next film, May December, or Erica Alexander as Jeffrey Wright's girlfriend in American fiction. I've done some soul-searching about my dislike for the film. I've asked myself, is this the case of a privileged old liberal white guy taking offense on behalf of black people over this film? I've concluded that if this was the story of white women who were being abused and enslaved by their husbands, I would be just as offended by a light-hearted musical treatment of the topic. The film was released on Christmas Day in the U.S. with an estimated budget of about $100 million. It has earned only $60 million in the U.S. and Canada and just $67 million worldwide. It's currently available for streaming on Bax or for rent or purchase on Amazon and YouTube. Okay, don't hold back, Chris. Tell us what you really think. I really cannot recommend this film. Our final film this week could similarly be accused of not taking a serious topic seriously enough. May-December is a Netflix film starring Julianne Moore in a fictional story of a woman named Gracie Atherton, who at age 36 had an affair with a Korean-American 13-year-old boy named Joe Yu. She was the manager of a pet store, and he worked there as a stock boy. Their affair was discovered, and she was sentenced to jail, where she gave birth to his child. This film takes place 20 years later. By this time, Gracie has been released from jail, and she and Joe are married. They had two more children. Their oldest daughter is now in college, and the twin boy and girl are about to graduate high school. Natalie Portman plays TV actress Elizabeth Berry, who's preparing to make a movie based on Gracie's story. She visits the Atherton U family to interview Gracie and Joe so that she can accurately portray their story in the upcoming film. The couple is very cooperative with Elizabeth, and they invite her to a family cookout a family dinner, and other opportunities to get to know the family. Elizabeth also interviews Grace's ex-husband and her children from the previous marriage, her lawyer, and other people around town who were familiar with the events from 20 years ago. I especially enjoyed her interview with Gracie's lawyer, 
He said he had defended murderers, arsonists, rapists, gangsters, and other unsavory characters as a defense attorney in New York City. Then he moved to Savannah, Georgia, to escape that kind of legal practice. He said that through defending all of these horrible people, it never got him on the front page of the New York Times. But then in Georgia, when he agreed to take Gracie's case, that landed him on the front page of the New York Times. Joe, who is now in his 30s, is still very much emotionally a 13-year-old boy, and Gracie often treats him as such. He's employed either as a X-ray technician or a radiologist in a hospital, but it's not clear which. They live in a large, well-furnished home on a lake or a river. It's unclear how they could afford such a place, so perhaps he is a doctor. They never explained. Gracie spends her time baking and selling her baked goods to friends and neighbors who seem to only purchase them because they feel sorry for her. There are several plot lines that seem to go nowhere as Elizabeth investigates the events from 20 years ago. And Gracie is a highly emotional person who at one point breaks down hysterically simply because someone canceled a baking order. The musical score accompanying the film features bold, dramatic, orchestral stings that seem to indicate that something dramatic is about to happen. Yet in one example of such a musical cue during a cookout, Gracie is staring into the refrigerator and then calmly declares, Hardly the dramatic moment that the music indicated we were going to see. On initial viewing, I didn't understand the film at all. Apparently, I was trying to take it too seriously. I was only reviewing the film because it was nominated for an Oscar for original screenplay. I did not notice until later that it had also been nominated for a Golden Globe as a comedy. Except for things like the overly dramatic, we need more hot dogs, and some over-the-top acting, I didn't see anything funny about it. So I went looking for reviews of the film to try to figure out what others had seen that I was missing. I came across a YouTube video by a reviewer I'd never heard of named Broly Duchanel. Her video was titled May, December, and the Melodrama of Film Twitter. The 53-minute video talked about a Twitter debate over whether or not the film was a melodrama and whether or not the word camp applied to the film. I had a rather generic layman's understanding of the term melodrama, even though we've briefly touched upon it in my writing seminar. 
but Miss Deschanel gives an extensive history of the term. From its earliest days in classic theater, two more modern plays, and especially films from the 1930s through the 1950s. She outlines several elements of what constitutes melodrama, and as she was doing so, I suddenly began to understand May-December. In some respects, it seems that the film is one giant inside joke for film aficionados. It is either an attempt to create a modern-day melodrama, or it's a spoof of classic melodramatic films. I'm not really sure which. At one point, Ms. Deschanel is talking about Roger Ebert's review of an earlier satirical look at the melodrama genre. Roger Ebert uses that care quote a decade later in his review of Written on the Wind, and he says something in this review that caught my attention. Written on the Wind, like Stella Dallas, appears to be played straight. But while I didn't cry watching it, I did feel myself chuckling now and then at the ridiculousness of its stakes. Ebert points out this new ironic take on the melodrama that Cirque is adopting. And in that irony, that satire is humor. He says, if you only see the surface, it's trashy soap opera. If you can see the style, the absurdity, the exaggeration and the satirical humor, it's subversive of all the 1950s dramas that handled such material solemnly. Cirque's style spread so pervasively that nobody could do melodrama with a straight face after him. Ebert ends his review with one blazing question. One test of satire is, at what point do we realize the author is kidding? Which is how we arrive at this current discourse around May-December. At what point do we realize the author is kidding? In my case, the answer clearly is, I didn't get the joke until I learned the history of melodrama as presented in this YouTube review. The video also discusses whether or not the film is appropriately called Camp. Author Susan Sontag wrote one of the definitive essays on Camp, and she says that sometimes an item is either knowingly Camp or unknowingly Camp. She seemed to prefer the latter. The film's director, Todd Haynes, claims that his film is not camp. So either he's continuing to tease us, or the film is unknowingly camp. If you watched the film and didn't understand it as a satirical look at melodrama, I encourage you to watch the YouTube review that I've linked in the description of the podcast. And even if you're not interested in this particular film, that YouTube video is a fascinating look at the history of melodrama and camp satire. I think it's well worth your time. So on initial viewing, I thought the film was a ridiculous mess. But viewed as satire, I begin to understand it on some levels. I can't recommend the film unless you're just curious about it. Many people are offended that someone would treat such a serious topic in a satirical way. Then again, as Ms. Deschanel points out, 
one of the most beloved comedies in film history is Mel Brooks' The Producers, which is about a bunch of people creating a musical play about Nazi Germany, including a hilarious number titled Springtime for Hitler. This Netflix film saw only limited theatrical release. With an estimated budget of $10 million, its worldwide gross is only $3.4 million. But then again, box office numbers for Netflix films really don't mean that much. It's still available exclusively on Netflix. IMDb reports 176 nominations and 34 wins. In addition to its original screenplay Oscar nomination, it had four Golden Globe nominations. So that wraps up our look at four films with five nominations that were not Best Picture. Next week, we tackle a pair of films in a category I call Genocidal Husbands, and we will follow that up with our final episode of the Oscars series, Genius at Work. If you find this podcast educational, entertaining, enlightening, or even inspiring, consider sponsoring me on Patreon for just $5 per month. You'll get early access to the podcast and other exclusive content. Although my finances are a mess, I don't do this for the money. But every little bit helps. As always, my deepest thanks to my financial supporters. I'll never be able to express how much that means to me. And even if you can't provide financial support, please share my links to the podcast because I just want more people to hear my stories. You can check out my back episodes and please leave comments, questions, or feedback wherever you find this podcast. Tell me what you did or did not like about these films. Did you get the inside jokes of May-December? Were you offended by the color purple? Start the conversation. I'll see you next week as we continue contemplating life. Until then, fly safe, everyone.